All right, uh, my name is Peter Panarchy. Uh, I'm the vice chair of the Oregon Libertarian Party of Oregon uh, Public Policy Board, and I'm also an organizer for the Oregon Mises Caucus. Uh, this is the Oregon Libertarian Podcast. Um, this is Foreign Policy Fridays, episode seven. Crazy, this is our seventh episode, so we started this to talk about foreign policy on Fridays. Today is not Friday, but we weren't able to have an episode this past Friday, so we're doing one now. So. With that, I'll introduce uh, my first guest, uh, Pablo. Hello, I'm Pablo Serrato. I am a humble uh, Libertarian Party of Oregon volunteer. Uh, I live in Multnomah County, and I am uh, excited. I'm a student of history, uh, whatever that means, and I'm excited to be here to talk about World War I history. Go ahead, Risto. Hello, my name is Risto, and uh, I live in Multnomah County, uh, Oregon, which is the largest county in which Portland resides. Um, and I'm also involved with the Libertarian Party of Oregon, uh, helping out with the Public Policy Board. I also uh, like to put on uh, more cultural-oriented events, uh, like our once a month uh, uh, liver tequila uh, casual hangouts and uh, yeah and occasionally like to join these discussions and uh, learn new things about World War One. Sweet. So I believe this is going to be the fourth episode proper on World War One history. Uh, we had some other episodes are about history of the Ukraine-Russia conflict and it's about the Rage Against the War Machine protest event. So the reason I wanted to start this series is I really feel like a lot of boomer cons and like tankies on Twitter always talk about how this uh, conflict in Russia and Ukraine right now really closely resembles World War II. When in reality, it's a lot more similar to World War One, being that it was a totally unavoidable train wreck that was caused by the greed of the oligarchs in the respective countries they were from. And it was basically an accident. Um, each of the major powers thought that they could get what they wanted. They thought that war would be easy, like it had been, at least for them. For the past like couple hundred years, they had no idea what new technology um, was going to how it was going to change, like how the war developed, and uh, millions of people died because of it. So, um, so far in the series, uh, we talked about just an explanation of the alliance system and how it tends to make global conflict inevitable uh, because one eventually one person is going to get attacked and it starts a chain reaction that causes mass death and suffering. We talked a lot about the French and English secret military alliance that made the war just that much more inevitable, uh, how nobody really knew about it, even the parliament or the king of England, until basically like weeks before England declared war. And they would have had a lot of egg on their face if they hadn't done it. So there's a lot of people behind the, the scenes just making sure that Britain was going to enter the war no matter what. We also talked a lot about um, the France and Germany's like really bitter history over the Franco-Prussian War in 1870 and how the loss of its territory in Alsace and Lorraine really turned France uh, bitterly against Germany. And they were willing to do basically anything to get it back, including ally with their mortal enemy, England. 
And yeah, we talked a lot about the ways that Germany and England could have avoided the war, uh, but really chose not to. At, at the end, like it seemed like the Kaiser was really trying to get out of the war and was not happy about how the situation was developing, but it was just kind of too late, which we'll talk about here in a second. And all of these like failed negotiations and everything really naturally overlaps with the Ukraine situation. So I guess the point of the whole series was to say that as a libertarian, we should realize that all conflicts are between states. States are evil organizations that do not care about us. They only care about their own goals and they want profit and greed no matter what. So, all right, on to part seven, unless uh, anyone have any comments on the, the recap that just, that just totally ad hoc. All right, let's go into part seven, though. So this is uh, Russia and Germany. Um, we're going to dig more deeply into the last months of the war, but want to just back up a little bit and explain kind of the situation. So initially, uh, the new German Empire, when it formed after the Franco-Prussian War, and the Russian Empire were fast friends. They signed the League, the League of the Three Emperors in 1872 with Austria. Uh, they declared French republicanism and socialism to be a common enemy. And that was enough to hold them together for a while until 1891, when the Russians entered a military alliance formally, unlike France and Britain's. Um, it was a formal alliance and it was aimed at Germany specifically. Uh, this would set the stage for conflict to come. Russia was actually more concerned with Austria's possible encroaches on their territory than Germany, but uh, Germany and Austria were close allies and France really fucking hated Germany. So they figured out a way to make this happen. So as we shouldn't be surprised after our England and German uh, show, Kaiser Wilhelm II was the first cousin of Tsar Nicholas II. So really close familiar relations there. Um, after the uh, Russian mobilization against Germany, uh, that's pretty much what enacted the Schleifen plan, which uh, if you want to know more about that, check out our last episode. Uh, well, it was actually episode four that we talked about that as far as the FPF episodes go. But basically, uh, Germany figured at some point that they would get attacked by France or, German, or Russia. And in the event that Russia attacked them or was mobilizing, uh, they would attack France first, hoping to gain a quick victory and then turn its attention towards Russia. Uh, go ahead, Pablo. Yeah, just a, a quick note on the sort of monarchs of Europe uh, George the fifth of England was also first cousins with uh, Wilhelm and uh, Nicholas and Wilhelm were cousins uh, and uh, basically they're all related in some way. They're all like at least fifth cousins uh, through like Queen Victoria, which I thought is really, really interesting. And th there's some sort of uh, monarchist chatters thinking that saying that uh, had Victoria been alive during this period, that the, the, her grandchildren or great-grandchildren would have never gone to war with each other, which I always think is interesting. Um, and also a reminder of how, like, small and uh, literally incestuous uh, European monarchy was. Uh, a failure of the elites to stop a war, which is, an, again, kind of an interesting parallel to our present situation where we have uh, degenerated elites running the country like there, there are there are no great statesmen um sort of running foreign policy in, in in the united states or or europe it's it's all these sort of technocratic uh faceless charismaless uh wef type people 
Yeah, definitely. Um, Wilhelm II was actually the favorite grandson of Victoria, and it is kind of crazy how closely these were related. And there's a common theme, like in the last days of the war, where all of the the monarchs realized, ah, shit, Um, this isn't going like we thought it would. Um, Sorry, I thought I could get one over on you, bud. But it turns out that the world looks like it's going to go to war and we have to try to stop this. And they all kind of realized that it was impossible at that point because the military establishment and the other members of the government uh, just kind of wanted it to happen at that point. Hey, what's up, Fahim? Um, Yeah, I kind of made this episode uh, last minute for a a makeup from last week. So I didn't invite anybody. But uh, yeah, if you care to comment on anything we're talking about, uh, you are always free to. Um, all right. So, um, as we were just talking about, actually, so this is a letter to, uh, the czar to Wilhelm, um, pretty close to when the war broke out. So in this serious moment, I appeal you to help me. Tsar Nicholas wrote to the Kaiser in a telegram sent at one o'clock in the morning on July 29, 1914, an ignoble war has been declared to a weak country. The indignation in Russia shared fully by me is enormous. I foresee that very soon I shall be overwhelmed by the pressure forced upon me and forced to take extreme measures, which will lead to war. Uh, this message crossed with one from Wilhelm to Nicholas expressing concern about the effect of Austria's declaration in Russia and urging calm and consideration as a response. So I guess if you didn't hear my speech at the Rage Against the War Machine or aren't fully versed in these events, Um, Obviously, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia when Serbia refused to adhere to their kind of ridiculous demands, except for one. Um, Austria really wanted this war against Serbia, um, which Germany actually wasn't very happy about, but they didn't really have a choice. They decided to stick by their ally. And then in response, uh, Russia started to mobilize their army, which made Germany terrified. So this is them trying to avoid uh, the inevitable Armageddon that killed millions of people. So. After receiving the Tsar's telegram, uh, Wilhelm cabled back, I share your wish that peace should be maintained, but I cannot consider Austria's action against Serbia to be an ignoble war. Austria knows by experience that Serbian promises on paper are wholly unreliable. I understand its action must be judged as trending to get full guarantee that the Serbian promises shall become real facts. I therefore suggest that it would be quite possible for Russia to remain a spectator of the Austro-Serbian conflict without involving Europe in the most horrible war she has ever witnessed. I guess while the Kaiser is correct about some of this, I mean, it would have made a lot more sense to see what Austria was doing to Serbia as plain, but I guess they didn't want to walk away from their allies at all. Uh, Maybe Fahim has some light to shed on this. Actually, Peter, uh, first of all, can you hear me or no? Yep. Loud and clear. Okay. Um, I'm driving uh, right now, so um, I just want to make sure. So on a couple of things, one of the things what Pablo uh, said about the interrelationship, uh, I know I mentioned to you a while back uh, ago on uh, this, but it's uh, if you look at it from a marketing perspective, uh, that was when uh, the um, royal uh, English royal family changed their name from the Saxe Coburg uh, Gotha House uh, to the uh, uh, House of uh, Windsors, and uh, and also uh, like for folks who 
grew up in former British colonies. I spent half of my growing up years in in uh, Pakistan during the uh, Soviet uh, Afghanistan uh, war. And uh, it, it was interesting to see, like when you would look at the uh, German Shepherd's uh, dog, uh, people from the uh, former British colonies, they would call it Alsatian. And it had nothing to do with Alsace-Lorraine uh, uh, and, and all, but it was that whole concept of uh, like, okay, how do we uh, market ourselves as uh, uh, different uh, to uh, uh, sell it to the normal, uh, regular uh, people? Uh, so those were the two main uh, points. And are you going to go over uh, the uh, sinking of the Lusitania, Peter? Thank you. We'll definitely talk about the, all about the Lusitania and the Zimmerman telegram uh, when we finish this, this section up, which uh, honestly, there's not a whole lot left to go over. But yeah, really good great point on the. But one quick uh, thing I'm going to post in the uh, chat. Uh, I, I don't know if you guys uh, came across uh, news uh, articles of. Uh, uh, the uh, Wagner uh, group uh, supposedly uh, recruiting uh, folks uh, from the uh, zero units. Uh, are, you, are you all familiar with the zero units uh, in uh, Afghanistan uh, that were uh, like uh, highly trained, uh, 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 quote unquote, uh, special forces uh, units by the U.S.? Yeah, they were just the totally awful people that were just raping and pillaging yeah, Afghanistan, right? Exactly. Uh, that, that who were doing, uh, who were basically uh, uh, quote unquote uh, like death squads uh, and all that the U.S. Uh, trained. And apparently, uh, uh, now I uh, read some uh, articles from. Uh, uh, Al Mayadeen, as well as uh, Cradle and uh, the Canary, on uh, uh, the uh, Wa Wagner group now recruiting them uh, because uh, they were the ones who were uh, left behind by the U.S. and it's it's another example of. Uh, yeah, it sounds like you're breaking up a little bit, but yeah, uh, we, we this uh, stuff that got left behind in Afghanistan was going to come up. Eventually, yeah. and it was billions of dollars of equipment. Yeah. So uh, I didn't want to take away from the subject, uh, but uh, uh, since we uh, uh, ch chatted uh, a bit, I just uh, wanted to bring that up of uh, uh, like uh, uh, folks that we would just uh, uh, train and arm and all, and how it would end up uh, basically blowing up in our uh, uh, faces. Uh, so, but uh, go ahead, uh, uh, Peter. No, I mean, it's a great uh, realization. I mean, everything's to say is you, if you want to figure out who the U.S. is going to be at war with next, just look at who they're funding right now. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so, but no, but yeah, those were the few things I wanted to bring up. And I'll put uh, the link on the uh, zero units in the chat for you. Yeah, please do. I would like to look into that. That's That's really Good. interesting. Um, yeah, always looking to bring the parallels back to the current conflict, as was the point of the series. Uh, we're just going to finish up real quick with uh, Russia, Germany. 
So the telegram exchange continued over the next few days. So the two men spoke of their desire to preserve peace. Even their respective countries continued mobilizing for war. On July 30th, the Kaiser wrote to Nicholas, I have gone to the utmost limits of possible in my efforts to save peace. Even now, you can still save the peace of Europe by stopping your military measures. The following day, Tsar Nicholas replied, it is technically impossible to stop our military preparations, which we are obligatory owing to Austria's mobilization. We are far from wishing for war. As long as the negotiations with Austria and Serbia's account are taking place, my troops shall not take any provocative action. I give you my solemn word for this. But by the time, by, by that time, things had just gone too far. Uh, Emperor Franz Josef had rejected the Kaiser's mediation offer, saying it came too late. Um, and Russia had already mobilized, and Austrian troops were already marching on Serbia. So, uh, just, again, uh, even when it seems like the Tsar and the the Kaiser really did not want this war to take place, but as we've talked about, like this is a train that gets stuffed with too much cargo, and you think it's going to stop where you want it to, but it doesn't. It's going to go off the tracks, and it's going to kill a lot of people. So this tends to happen every time. Anytime you have people like that, you have government bureaucrats pretending that they're engineers and can do anything but have a controlled burn explode into something far worse. So. To wrap the story up, the German ambassador to Russia delivered an ultimatum that night, halt the mobilization within 12 hours, or Germany would begin its own mobilization, a step that would logically proceed to war. By 4 o'clock in the afternoon, on August 1st, in Berlin, no reply had come from Russia. In a meeting with Germany's civilian and military leaders, Chancellor von Hallwig and General Erich von Falkenhahn, uh, Kaiser, the Kaiser agreed to sign the mobilization orders. So, in that same day, his last contribution to what was dubbed the Willy Nicky Telegrams, not sure he came up with that dumb name, um, Tsar Nicholas uh, pressed the Kaiser for an assurance his mobilization did not definitely mean war. And the Tsar would never respond. So, and then uh, Germany declared war on Russia close afterwards. So, real tragedy, because this was really the failure to make peace that took things from a really global con like really local conflict rather between Austria and Serbia, which uh, would have been bad, but wouldn't have done world war one did and wouldn't have also led to world war two. So really sorry to see that. Uh, does anyone have any, any comments on German Russian relations pre-war? I guess before we move on to the U S Oh, thought Pablo had something, but okay. All right. Well, I guess everybody is just as sad as I am to read those letters or telegrams in some cases. So the U.S. and its entry into World War One. So a lot of this material is going to be taken from the Dangerous History podcast, uh, which is a fantastic podcast. Uh, the guy is a libertarian, an anarchist, a former history professor. And now a full-time podcaster, thanks to the support of his fans. So definitely check out Dangerous History Podcast. This episode is great in particular, 236, World War I Propaganda in the U.S. Part 1. So he really gets in-depth in just like how adept the British were in their propaganda efforts to bring the U.S. into the war. 
Um, they had like an entire like system of basically they were really good at making their propaganda come from other sources, which should sound familiar. Uh, they were really in with like the, the the banking elite, the authors, like the intelligentsia, just like really the three evils that we call the cathedral, I guess now. Um, yeah, the, the English were masters at influencing the American cathedral into seeing the, their war their way, whereas the Germans were very bad at this. All of their propaganda came out of official uh, German uh, channels, and the first act of war of Britain against Germany, as we mentioned last episode, was to sever the telegraph cables that allowed Germany to communicate with North America directly. So they... Basically, the only way they could talk is by sending people from the German embassy in the United States or like actual politicians like to to North America if they weren't there already. So definitely gave the British the advantage on how the war would be communicated through only their eyes. But yeah, if you want a full in-depth on that, just uh, go to Prof. CJ's podcast there. So. Uh, we're going to get in with the sinking of Lusitania by German U-boats and U.S. entry to World War One. But before that, I'm going to talk about just the U-boat war and the war in the North Sea there in general a little bit. So obviously, uh, the Wilson administration, uh, being the worst presidential administration in history, um, actually did something good when they condemned the brutal British blockade of Germany uh, during World War One. So other neutral nations were affected. Uh, despite Britain using the violation of Belgium's neutrality by Germany, is there a primary reason for ending the war? I mean, everybody in the North Sea like felt the the blockade, and then of course like the full mining of the North Sea uh, completely stopped trade at that point. But I didn't look up the numbers of just how many, especially German, but even neutral countries uh, civilians uh, died uh, from starvation, but it was a lot. And uh, most people at the time saw that as just a complete violation of the rules of war. But uh, the British responded by saying that Lincoln's blockade of the Confederacy also violated all the rules of naval warfare. Um, They even prevented food and medical supplies from being able to enter a Confederate port. So I don't know. To be honest, like Wilson probably didn't even care about the blockade because he wanted to enter the war from the beginning. But he was probably just kind of doing platitudes there. But. Peter, that's a great summation. And it's, I think it's really important to hit home, like, sort of the, the humanitarian crisis that the British inflicted upon uh, the, German, the German people. Uh, and think about, like, this is just imperialist behavior. Um, you you uh, cannot starve or blockade a, a, a civilian population and not expect that to escalate into a larger conflict. You cannot... Um, declare uh, food as, as contraband and, and expect there to be peace. So that, that is incredibly belligerent behavior on, on behalf of the British. And I see a lot of parallels with uh, the way the United States treated the Iraqi people in the 1990s. Uh, and uh, when we think about um, total war, uh, yeah, it's very astute that, that you mentioned the Lincoln connection because it is, in fact, the civil war that is the first example of like total war being uh, fought on a population, first modern war. So uh, just really important uh, facets to sort of uh, keep top of mind whenever you approach a libertarian analysis of history. 
Yeah, none of this is to defend like the German government in any way. Like I, I think I've said this before, but I think all parties are pretty equal um, in their blame for World War One and their them st- not refusing to stop it. I guess the British are maybe a little bit more unequal based on the fact that they really engineered the origins of the conflict uh, through their relationship with France and, and Russia. And they really wanted the war to happen, even though they had no direct interest in it. And then of course, completely violated everybody's neutrality in the North sea. Um, like I said, after using Belgium's neutrality as a reason for entering the war, um, So I guess we'll get into this a little bit deeper here. So um, in the early war um, against Britain and France and World War I and proper, uh, the German Navy uh, made early attempts to warn what they saw as potentially neutral ships from being attacked by their U-boats, mostly merchant ships. So these U-boats were pretty new technology. Uh, The Confederacy had experimented with submarines like during the Civil War, to no real success, but the Germans definitely figured it out. And they had a pretty good fleet of really the first modern submarines. So, but either way, um, it's pretty difficult to tell which were enemy neutral. And in some cases with spotty 1914 radar, um, who was a, a friendly when you're underwater in 1914. So they would come up to the surface if the ship didn't look like a military ship and many would offer terms for surrender, especially early war. So this is a globe-like war zone, but the North Sea is not a big place. If you look at it on a map, there's a ton of countries like all jammed up there, and they're all still trying to have some type of an economy, while the Germans and English and French are all warring it out. So <clears throat> uh, Churchill like saw the situation and realized that the Germans were doing this, and Churchill being the most overrated person in the 20th century, as we'll have a whole episode about how much I fucking hate Winston Churchill, uh, he took advantage of this, um, telling all British merchant ships to flag or fly the flags, rather, of neutral countries. So literally a false flag. <laughs> like he told them, like, especially just fly the U.S. flag, never fly your own flag. Um, and especially to the, the British, the British ships. And uh, never surrender to the U-boats, never announce to any U-boat under any circumstance, like the nationality of your vessel. Um, They would even paint over the hulls of their ships to disguise like their identity. And they were ordered to ram any U-boats that were coming to the surface and trying to see if they wanted to surrender. So uh, this made it basically suicidal to make attempts to find out what nation the ship you were attempting to attack was or what it was carrying. So this drastically increased the amount of neutral merchant ships to be attacked and like look into Prof. CJ's sources here, which he lists out very well in his five hour podcast that I'm trying to summarize in about 15 minutes, I guess. I mean, this actually was like an hour and a half, but um, he has every reason to believe as well as I do that Churchill was doing this deliberately. Uh, he wanted like merchant ships to be attacked uh, because he wanted the war to expand. Like he wanted all of these neutral countries that are having their ships attacked, like especially the United States, to join the war. So I mean, he, he said this directly. Um, not, not getting any context on these and obviously no telegraph cables back to the U.S. Uh, the Americans only got the English side of this story. So they basically just heard like, oh, these are these German U-boats and this like new scary technology. They're underwater. They're, they're killing everybody out there. Um, it's a bad situation. We probably should do something about it. So 
This brings us to May 7, 1915. Um, unless anyone has a comment before we dig into the Lusitania story proper. Have we have we talked about on any of these uh, podcasts the definition of re revisionist history and sort of revisionist history as it comes from like the sort of Austrian Mises sort of libertarian circles? I don't think we have. I think that's a great time to bring that up though. Okay. Uh, th th this definition comes from, uh, again, my favorite libertarian historian, who's a classical liberal, but uh, sort of a unique one. Uh, his name is Ralph Rako, and he defines revisionist history as, in a really like conversational way, in a lecture I heard earlier today, um, that revision history is a revision of the standard government line, especially in regard to wars. And it has to do with any government we're particularly concerned, of course, with the American government when a war occurs. The government feels that it's obliged to propound a certain line about how the enemy was totally responsible for this war, and we never did anything wrong. The, the, the enemy has committed terrible atrocities, and it's, there is no history prior to that atrocity. Uh, so the, 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 the Germans are brutal. Uh, the, 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 the Russians are evil. Uh, there is no nuance. There is no history. If you know history, you're obviously an apologist. And uh, that is sort of the what a libertarian take on history uh, will have to confront. And you will have to revise history, which has been recorded as government propaganda, because every school children in America here is about the Lusitania as being this flashpoint of, of German barbarism, a civilian ship sunk by, by, by ruthless U-boats that drew the world into conflict. But it is uh, the duty of the libertarian to sort of challenge that and revise this government-fed propaganda about history. And this is a really good example, a really good conversation to have to illustrate that. Thanks for that, Pablo. It was a really good explanation and definitely a focus of this of this podcast. Um, I did take that opportunity to look up how many civilians died um, under the British blockade, Germans. Looks to be roughly half a million. And this blockade did not end. <laughs> when the war ended, I know we're talking about the beginning right now, but the British kept this blockade up until the Germans agreed to sign the Treaty of Versailles. So after the war had pretty much completely ended, they basically said, hey, you, you people are going to continue to die until you sign this quote unquote peace treaty that was so egregious that it would lead directly to World War II. Um, so pretty awful. Anyways, um Back to the Lusitania. So in May 7, 1915, the RMS Lusitania was off the coast of Ireland within the declared war zone um, and was attacked by a German U-boat by a single torpedo. When this torpedo hit, it caused a bunch of secondary explosions to go off. Uh, it sank in under 20 minutes. Uh, pretty crazy for a ship hit by one torpedo to sink in 20 minutes. Uh, by contrast, the Titanic took two and a half hours to sink. So why, you might ask? Uh, we will get into that. So, of course, uh, everyone knew at this time that there was a war zone um, near Ireland and really all over the, the North Sea, near the British, British Isles. Um, it was Everyone knew there was a war going on, and the Germans had made it very clear at that point that if you are a merchant ship like sailing through these waters, uh, no guarantee we're not going to attack you, as their early efforts to trying to prevent this had simply failed. Um, so, uh, when the ship sank... There were 2,000 souls on board, uh, 1,200 of which died. 10% uh, of them were American. 
there is plenty of evidence that Churchill deliberately exposed the Lusitania to, to danger because he knew there were many Americans on board. There is proof that he and Wilson both knew this, which we will get into. But first, a little bit more about the Lusitania itself. It was a ship, nominally a merchant vessel, owned by the Cunard Company, a British company. In reality, the ship's design had been assisted by the British Admiralty. They even paid for some of the ship's construction costs. It could be easily modified into a war vessel. It even had spots for guns. And the lower cargo area was specifically designed to smuggle weapons and munitions. At the time that it was sunk, the Lusitania was jammed full of 6 million rounds of small arms ammo, 11 tons of gunpowder, and many also artillery shells. Uh, this is what caused the secondary explosions and the huge loss of life. Um, the people on board did not know that the ship was smuggling cargo, I guess, besides the, the people captaining it. But I would venture to guess that most of those American civilians on board had no idea that the ship was actually smuggling weapons and not just regular supplies. So, however, the German government was quite aware that the ship was smuggling illegal contraband. Um, they got a message through to the Wilson administration uh, specifically telling them this. It's like, hey, this is a valid military target. Um, we know this isn't a real ship. It's clearly smuggling. And um, if your people are on board it, there's a good chance that they could die. So uh, when he talks about this, uh, Prof. CJ makes a really good point. I just wanted to quickly bring up, he talks about like the firebombing during World War II of like and civilian death, especially in Dresden and Tokyo and other places, um, killing hundreds of thousands of civilians in an afternoon would never garner a small percentage of the outrage felt over this incident. And I guess maybe some of it's just war fatigue, but I don't know. The Americans like didn't blink an eye at that point that they killed half a million people just because they thought it would make the war last a little bit less time. So going back to the story at hand here, the Wilson administration uh, having the forewarning of the Lusitania being a targeted vessel could have stopped the voyage. Uh, they could have done a press release. Uh, they chose not to. The German government, uh, realizing that the Wilson administration was not going to respond to them, actually placed ads in American newspapers warning Americans to not go on merchant ships that were headed into the European war zone. You can actually find these ads uh, to this day. They don't mention Lusitania specifically, but I mean, Lusitania was one of the most famous ships like making this haul like back and forth. So here we get into like the more conspiratory angles of this story, which although none of them can be disproven, like individually, they don't mean anything. Uh, but when you look at them all together, they tend to paint a picture here. So when Lusitania reached the edge of the declared war zone, Near the British Isles, uh, a British destroyer called Juno had been with it since it left New York. Uh, it was suddenly ordered away to do something else, like as soon as it got close to the actual war zone. So that's kind of weird. Uh, the Lusitania was also most likely the fastest transatlantic liner at sea on the, at the time. It could do a top speed of 24 knots. Uh, U-boats could only do about 12 knots on the surface and only six when submerged. So if actually trying to not be attacked, you would think it would just do its top speed all the way through to finish its voyage. For some reason, it felt like slowing down. So slowed down. I don't remember the exact speed, but 
obviously it had a factor. So when the ship was attacked, it was going on a straight line course. It was incredibly common procedure at the time to zigzag when you're going through this war zone that the ship had done many times to avoid being targeted by U-boats. For some reason, this didn't occur either. So all these things, uh, it lost its escort, it didn't zigzag, and it slowed down, uh, made it much more likely that the ship would be sunk. And there's no one has ever come up with a rational explanation for any of them. So anything about that before we go into the aftermath? All right, so the British government at the time vehemently denied that the ship was carrying any war munitions. This was despite the fact that the ship's manifest clearly stated that they were on board. When the wreckage was explored decades later, this was further proven to be true. Wilson also knew the ship contained munitions. Uh, Secretary of State William Jennings Bryan at the time, not a great person overall, but has some redeeming qualities. And in this case, he was very opposed to the United States uh, entering World War I. And uh, he specifically told Wilson, hey, this Lusitania thing, it's not what it seems. I'm pretty sure there are weapons on board. I'm pretty sure they're just using this to try to bait us into the war. And Wilson didn't care, though. Um, he issued a strong condemnation of Germany, saying it was barbarous what they were doing in the North Sea, and someone needs to put a stop to it. And Williams Jennings Bryan resigned and was replaced by a Anglophile that was very pro the U.S. entering the war. No coincidence there. So Wilson didn't declare war yet, though, because it was still only 1915. Uh, he wanted to wait until he was safely reelected, despite the fact that uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, had just won re-election using the slogan, he kept us out of the war. Which, uh, that, if that's not hope and change for you in 2008, I don't know what is. But... You know, it's crazy, right? These, especially American presidents, never run on platforms of war. They always run on platforms of peace. And they, they never actually do that when they get into office. But so can't be too surprised. So, yeah, that's pretty much the end of the Lusitania. Unless, Fahim, I know you were interested in this topic. I'd be happy to hear from you or Pablo or Aristo if you have any comments on Lusitania. Just, just the the kept us out of war thing. Like it, it is amazing um, that even in the early twentieth century, uh, no matter who you voted for, you still got John McCain's foreign policy. Like it's it's just wild. But but Wilson is actually particularly it, it, good to focus on because he established the sort of what liberal like international order of the United States will make the world safe for democracy, which has been sort of the the fundamental way that neocons and neolibs have like approached foreign policy as, you know, the, the humanitarian with the atom bomb or the humanitarian with the drone bomb. Um, they're going to make the world safer. Democracies always. Oh yeah. I mean, he definitely came up with that, which that's clearly seen in um, protecting our democracy, protecting Ukraine's democracy, despite the fact that the U S and, um, and Ukraine and Russia, for that matter, are all fascist oligarchies. But I mean, Wilson also, also oh. espionage. I'm not sure if you've gone into uh, Wilson's domestic policies in terms of defending um, the war effort. But uh, once the war was in full swing, the the Espionage Act and like the Sedition Act were used against political targets for exercising political speech, including 
socialist presidential candidate Eugene Debs, who was imprisoned for saying at a socialist political convention that the United States was entering the war on behalf of the banks. And that so, you know, hurt the troops, uh, as Wilson was saying, and hurt the war effort that, that he had to be uh, put into prison and stood there throughout Wilson's term. It wasn't until the next president or a couple of presidents down that Eugene Debs was uh, released from prison for speaking out against the war. Yeah, when I was at Rage Against the War Seattle, uh, somebody, her name was Natalie, actually gave the speech that Eugene Debs gave in Canton, Ohio in 19, oh, it was, might have been 1919 or 1921. Somebody have to correct me, but that was the speech he was actually put in prison for. And it was a good speech. Uh, there was a, really nothing in it that I would disagree with. I think Eugene Debs, although a socialist, was an incredibly courageous person. And uh, as I said to many people after the Rage Against the War Machine event on Twitter, uh, the difference between you and us is that we would have marched with Eugene Debs um, and we would have tried to protect him and we would have had his back when he's trying to stop World War One, and you would have called us puppets of the Kaiser. So despite what political party people say that they're a part of, if they're not actually anti-war, then they are our enemies. All right, so I guess we will finish up on the last piece of this puzzle, which was the now known as the Zimmerman telegram, which I didn't quite have enough time to do all, as extensive research on this, but it is pretty straightforward. So um, basically, uh, there was a secret communication between the German government and the Mexican government, where in the event that the U.S. entered the war, uh, Germany had offered a military alliance with Mexico. So everyone made a really big deal out of this, saying, oh, it's like basically the Germans conspiring with Mexico in order to attack the United States, which is kind of funny, actually, if you want to bring this back to the Ukraine situation, like something that we're trying to constantly explain to people is like, all right, well, what if Russia made a military alliance with Mexico and they were in an alliance with Canada and basically encircled us on all sides. And we, would we still see that as a defensive alliance? And it's exactly what happened here. It was the U.S.'s justification for entering World War I, even though the alliance was contingent on the U.S. entering the war. So all the uh, Americans had to do to stop Mexico from, I don't know, trying to invade them, even though they had lost every war they had had with the United States, would be to not enter World War I. So never, even when I was like in elementary school, I was like, wait, this, this doesn't really make sense. Um, seems like everyone was already in line for war and just wanted it to happen. And they just saw this as a box checked. I've heard a lot of people say that they actually thought the Zimmerman telegram wasn't even real. I don't have any evidence that that was the case, but I don't know. At this point, I would not be surprised. So probably didn't cover everything on uh, American entry, but I think those those really the main two things that that really caused it. Besides, obviously, just U.S. imperialism, like uh, Wilson's obsession with England, and just becoming like the new British Empire. And yeah, like we talked about earlier, the making the world safer democracy, even though. It's hard to look at any of the major powers and see that they were democratic countries. So it's all just propaganda.
as usual. But I will open the floor up if anyone has any topics about U.S. entry into World War One or what we talked about earlier, Russia, Germany. Um, but yeah, if not, I think our next episode is, well, I guess I'll wait for those comments first. All right. Uh, our next episode uh, is probably going to be about, yeah, probably uh, like you were just talking about uh, America, like during World War One, like the anti-war movement, uh, Eugene Debs, uh, the Sedition Act, like all of that. And we're probably not going to spend too much time on the war itself because we're going to want to get into the Treaty of Versailles and I guess like the at the end of the war and just kind of how it led up to World War II. I don't know for sure. We probably won't have an episode this Friday because I'm going to be out in Sherman County uh, with Travis. Um, but we'll get something planned for next week. It might not actually be Friday because I'm leaving for vacation next Friday. But after I get back from that, we'll get back on our regular Friday schedule. So any last thoughts, Pablo, Aristo? Uh yeah, thank you for that information. Um, some of that was really just like a, a rehash of stuff I, I know that I'd uh, learned at some point. But uh, it's it's really interesting and like kind of scary to see that there are so many parallels to what is happening right now uh, with uh, these provocations between the U.S. and Ukraine and the uh, like the constant false flags or seeming uh, false flags. We had the the missiles that were launched uh, across the border of uh, Ukraine into Poland and they were trying to point the finger at Russia. Uh, the Nord Stream pipeline attack, which uh, I think just today they're they're finally saying, oh, it was uh, it was some group uh uh, in allegiance to Ukraine, uh, like I, I, I still doubt that uh, anybody besides a, a military, an actual military unit, could have pulled it off. But uh, I don't know that for sure. Uh, so it, it's like we see all of these uh, uh, provocations being attempted, and they're just waiting for one to stick. Yeah, and if you want more information on the Nord Stream pipeline incident, definitely read Timur Hirsch's article about that. Or he was just on the Scott Horton show and talked about all that. Bit of a contentious interview, which is always funny to see with Scott. But great interview, nonetheless. And yeah, that situation with the, the missiles like ending up in Poland was super crazy. I mean, it's, like I remember Jack Sobek, is that his name? Sobek, uh, yeah. Guy, you think he's great until he's immediately like, oh God, we need to defend Poland, Poland, like invoke Article 5. And everyone else was like, okay, so this was the masterful Russian plan to invade NATO. We're just going to strike a small farm on the border with Poland. And that's going to somehow, that's our master plan. Yeah, that guy sucks. Don't trust him. So, 
Uh, could you say a little bit about the contentious interview between Scott Horton and uh, Seymour Hirsch? What was contentious? I get I just get the feeling Seymour Hirsch is kind of a contentious guy. Um, I don't think he really likes doing these interviews, which um, I, mean, I guess you really blame him with all the, the flack that he's gotten from uh, the media in general. Um, I mean, Scott's interviewed him a number of times, um, but he was like kind of pushing back sometimes on like the way that it was, he was framing the questions or like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. But I don't know. It was a great interview. Like definitely, definitely good. Check it out. wonder if that's just a sign that Seymour Hirsch is under a lot of pressure. Yeah, it probably is. Oh, Fahim, did you uh, have something on the Seymour Hirsch interview? No, I didn't. Uh, I'll let the listeners listen to it. I didn't think it was really contentious. I mean, it's basically two folks who would be talking uh, uh, fast and uh, Seymour Hirsch being uh, from uh, New York uh, and all and him uh, just uh, uh, him and Scott just going over uh, each other a few times but I I really didn't uh, think so I mean uh, uh, that it was really contentious but I'd uh, like to hear uh, from uh, others what they uh, uh, thought when they uh, heard the uh, when they uh, listened to the whole uh, thing because uh, uh, Scott I mean uh, I always uh, tell a lot of uh, people from the left uh, and all I'm like as you mentioned about uh, Eugene Debs uh, I think of uh, someone like Scott and I often tell folks I'm like I don't care what your politics are, but uh, from an anti-war perspective, I'm like, you got to give this guy a a lot of credit. I mean, he's had like almost close to 6,000 shows and almost, or as he would say, almost all in foreign policy. (laughs) And uh, and he has been consistent uh throughout uh, so I, I i really and i and i personally really enjoy uh, listening uh, to uh scott because he relays uh uh things in, in a way that like normal people can under, understand because a lot, lot of times things get um, uh, intellectualized or uh basically coded to a point of like UN resolution, blah, 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 and you, uh, and all of that uh, stuff. At the end of the day, I mean, you know, you're dealing with people and you're dealing with people's uh, uh, lives. Uh, so he's, uh, I mean, he, to me, I would definitely put him uh, up uh, with any of the voices from coming coming from any uh, side of the political spectrum. Uh, in fact, even uh, uh, higher, just because of his total uh, consistency uh, on uh, on the issue of being against war and uh, being uh, against uh, imperialism uh, and all. His thing has always been very consistent of like, hey, if uh, 
we are uh, uh, that uh, great. Let's uh, be a shining example to uh, others. We don't need to go and uh, uh, intervene uh, in every uh, second, third part of the world. So, so yeah, so, so that's uh, me uh, fanboying as Scott, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, I think that was well said. Uh, I usually say this at the top of the program, but obviously uh, the opinions of the show should not be misconstrued as the official opinions of the Libertarian Party of Oregon yet. <laughs> we'll see what we can do with the public policy board. But, I mean, in general, it's... Sorry, Risto, did you have something you wanted to add to that? Uh, no, I'm good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but... Don't let these people like put you in a corner and act like you don't care about Ukraine just to, I guess, finish off here. Like they don't have the moral high ground. Like this is a proxy war that like the way that I try to explain it is NATO and Russia are equally responsible for this conflict. Like, yes, Russia invaded and that was wrong. And it's, it's horrible what's going on there and the the loss of life, but it's, it's not like uh, Russia was invaded in the situation by decades of NATO, NATO encirclement and, I mean, when we all, people ever have any response to this when you just say like, okay, well, what about this peace treaty three weeks into the war that would have given Ukraine all of its territory back, like besides Crimea, and they would have got a security guarantee that wasn't NATO, but it would have been eight countries around it, including Poland and Turkey, and they all wanted to sign it. But you know who didn't want to sign it? Boris Johnson and NATO. And so we're here, here we are a year later. And anywhere between 40,000 and a million Ukrainians are dead. We have no idea. Um, but I'm guessing it's at least, at least 500,000. So as many Germans as died during the uh, the blockade of, of Germany in World War I um, are likely already dead in Ukraine. Because, uh, because of what exactly? Um, I guess whether eastern Ukraine is ruled by Kiev or ruled by Moscow. So... I think that really puts things in perspective and brings things around full circle. And I guess this is why we have this podcast because um, I guess I, mean, I might just have to end this podcast with uh, this quote every time because it's so goddamn great. As Julian Assange said, if wars can be started by lies, they can be stopped by truth. So let's get out there and let's spread the truth. All right. Have a good night, everybody. Cheers. <laughs>